Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. And when he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let you see it. As we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount and what has been known as the Beatitudes, the blessings that Jesus gave here, we have seen that uh, the Beatitudes teach us how it is that we enter the kingdom of God and what is the character of the person who is a citizen of the kingdom of God. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. We have come to the last of the Beatitudes there in verses 10 through 12. And as you look at this, about he says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. On the surface, it may look like this is very different from the rest of the Beatitudes. Uh, just by the way it is uh, given by the Lord Jesus, it's stressing what happens to the citizen of the kingdom. And while it may be different in the way it's phrased, <clears throat> there is a continuity still in the Sermon on the Mount uh, with the Beatitudes and this last one, simply because the Christian is persecuted because they are a, a particular type of person and that the Christian behaves in a certain way, that's why they're persecuted. I read just the other day an article, uh, I don't know all the basis of where they got their statistics on this, but the article said that near, now, nearly after 2,000 years, the Christian religion has taken over from the Jewish religion as the most persecuted religion on planet Earth. Now, whether <clears throat> how accurate it is that we are number one in being persecuted, all you have to do is study church history and to know that the church has been greatly persecuted ever since its inception. And <clears throat> in this beatitude Jesus has given to us, he says, you're blessed when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. The kingdom of God is yours. Um, and he says, blessed are you when men give insults against you, and they persecute you and say all kinds of evil things falsely against you for on account of me. And what's our attitude supposed to be? We're to rejoice. Because he says, be glad, 
For your reward in heaven is great because you're in good company. They also persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, there's no coincidence as to why Christianity is, has been historically persecuted. It actually makes total theological sense. Ever since the Garden of Eden, in man's fall into sin, the curse that was placed upon all the parties involved and the curse against um, Satan was that he would bruise the seed of the woman's heel, but the seed of the woman would crush his head. And, and ever since the Garden of Eden, we have seen there is set in historical precedence, there's a war that has been going on since the dawn of time, ever since the fall. You have a battle between Christ the Messiah and his seed, which is his church, and the seed of the serpent, which is the devil, and all who belong to him. And that war has been going on for thousands and thousands of years. In fact, we're told in 1 Peter 5, 8, uh, it tells us that Satan roams around the earth like a roaring lion seeking whom he may, he may devour. He is the ancient foe. Uh, he is relentless in uh, wanting to destroy, if he can, the Lord's bride, which is the church. Now, the scripture tells us he is a defeated foe, however. And let's turn to a passage that tells us uh, the victory in principle that the Lord Jesus has sustained over the devil. So turn with me to uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 14. Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, the text tells us straightforward that on the cross, Jesus, in principle, defeated the devil and made him powerless over the people of God. Because in Jesus' death on the cross, he has paid the terrible price for our rebellion. And before his atoning work, we are told that we were in slavery to sin, and we were in slavery to the devil. 
In fact, Second uh, Timothy 2.26 says that we have been held captive by the devil to do his will. And that God has to grant repentance to people to lead them out of that captivity. So the non-Christian is a slave of the devil. The non-Christian is a slave of their own sin. We're also told in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, that Satan is the god of this world, and Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelievers that they might not see the glory of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And until God opens our eyes, that text says, we will not see the glory of Christ until the light of the gospel shines. And the only way that gospel light can shine is that God, by his grace and mercy, changes your life, changes your heart, frees you from that slavery to the devil and to your own sin. And so we see throughout the scripture, Paul, uh, Jesus, related to him, he says, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. And to be to proclaim the gospel and to deliver men out of the domain of darkness and to deliver them from Satan's domain to Christ's domain. So you see, there's a war that's going on between the devil and, and Christ. And Satan hates the people of God. Now we're told in Matthew chapter 12, uh, all I will say about Matthew chapter 12 at this point, here is that Jesus said that a, a divided kingdom cannot stand. And that Jesus has gone in and he has plundered the domain of the strong man by casting out demons. And when Jesus was casting out demons... There were those who said, well, you're casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, meaning the devil. And that's when Jesus says, that's ridiculous. Why would Satan want to cast out Satan? He says, but I have come and I have bound the strong man. And the strong man, obviously, is Satan. And therefore, since I have bound him, I am plundering his house. And that's why... It is consistent when Jesus sent out the disciples uh, <clears throat> while he was still in his ministry on the earth. He sent them out to uh, herald the coming of the kingdom of God. And they came back saying, well, the demons are subject to our name. Uh, the people are, are healed uh, by us uh, saying they are healed in the name of your name. Then Jesus said, I saw Satan star from, uh, fall from heaven like a great star. So, all of this goes to show that since the fall, Satan, before the coming of Christ, had virtually free reign over the earth. But with the advent of the Lord Jesus uh, and with his death on the cross, he rendered a death blow to Satan. And it's been a mopping up process ever since. But mind you... In light of all of this, Peter does still say that the devil is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And therefore, though he is bound, he's, he's bound in the sense that he's no longer the deceiver of the nations. 
but he still is a powerful force to reckon with. And he is still behind all the persecution that we experience. And so that I say all of this to, to mention this. Christianity is persecuted the way it is and let's accept it. Let's say we're the most persecuted church, I mean religion in the world. We're persecuted that way because we are the true religion. It is the only true religion that there is. That's why we're persecuted. And that's no coincidence because Satan is still around and he hates us. Don't you think that uh, Satan, uh, how do you think he takes when, as the scripture says, his citadel, his domain is plundered? You think he's happy? You think he's just going to say, oh, well, I guess the church has won another one. It is a vicious war. And he still assaults us. That's why the Bible says put on the armor of God. Put up the shield of faith. Put up the shield of faith by which you can quench all the fiery darts of the devil. So, Satan, uh, if I may say, is riled up by the fact that the church has the impact that it does. And remember, the ministry of the apostles was to bring all thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. That we are destroying every speculation that's raised up against the knowledge of God, 2 Corinthians 10 says. Now, Paul put it bluntly this way. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning at verse 14 to verse 18. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove uh, us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles, that they might be saved with the result that they are always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. But we, brethren, having been bereft of you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan thwarted us. Interesting. Satan thwarted them. I'll talk a little bit later as to what went on in Thessalonica that Paul is making reference to. But the Apostle Paul uh, says that uh, in Thessalonica, the devil was doing what he could to thwart the progress of the gospel. But it wasn't just true of Thessalonica. All of the ministry of the Apostle Paul, where he went, uh, he says that he endured great sufferings, oftentimes at the hands of the, of the unbelieving Jews. And who was behind it all? Satan is behind it. He's behind all the persecution. So in the history of mankind, in the history of the church, 
since the days of Christ and the apostles, all antagonism against the church of the Lord Jesus in, in ways that we're going to talk about, the, uh, the one who is instigating it, the one who's fomenting the rebellion is Satan himself. Because he hates God, and therefore he hates us. Now, <clears throat> that's what we need to understand, is that Satan hates God. And because he hates God, he obviously then will hate the bride of Christ, which is his church. And that's why we're persecuted. It's, there's no mystery about it. In fact, Jesus said that we would be persecuted. He said that we would be persecuted here in, in Matthew 5. But turn to Matthew 10, look at verse 22. Now, this is a prophetic statement of the Lord Jesus while he was on earth. And you will be hated by all on account of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Now, Jesus makes it very clear. Why are we hated? Because of my name is why you will be hated. There's no maybe about it. You're going to be persecuted because they hate me. Turn over to John chapter 15. And look at, begin at verse 18 to verse 25. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would, not have, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this in order that the word may be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Now Jesus sets it straightforward. He says to us, don't be surprised at persecution. He says, if they hate you, it's because they hated me first. They hated me first, and that's why they hate you. And the reason, and this is important, the reason they hate us is because we are not like them. We are not of the world. See that there? If you were the world, the world would love you. <laughs> but you're not of the world as a Christian. Remember, 1 John 2, verses 15 and 16 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. 
For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And everyone who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, that is a very blunt statement and says that if, if a person loves the world, they're not a Christian. He says, the reason we are persecuted is because we're not of this world. We don't have the mindset of the world. We have differing values than the world. And, and we are different. You know, oftentimes people are persecuted simply because they're different. It's sad to see this among children. If you ever think children are so innocent, just watch how they treat other children and you'll find out. I mean, children can be very, very cruel to other children. And, and the reason oftentimes there's that cruelty is simply because they're different. Just different. They may have a club foot and then they're made fun of and mocked because they're different. The world hates us because it hated Jesus, who was not of the world. And if I'm a Christian, I'm not of the world either. And the reason is, again, that we, the world, and the Christian community, we have two completely different worldviews. We look at life differently. We have differing values. We have a different set of ethics by which we go on, the Ten Commandments, the law of God, and the world. What is its standard? Whatever you want to do, right? Whatever feels good, do it. And we're destined to clash. And, and Jesus says here, the reason the world persecutes us is, and why it persecuted him, is because they don't know the Father. Jesus straightforward says, they do not know the Father. So all of these Jews and their religion, he says, is a false religion. They don't know the Father. And because they don't know the Father, that's why they hate me, and that's why they hate you. Because you're of the family of God. So we must realize at the outset that our persecution, ultimately, that comes to us is because it's due to the fact that people hate Jesus. That's what he said. He says, they will hate you for my namesake. That's what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. They will hate you for my namesake because you are a Christian. I remember... Um, he used to work for the Washington Times. John Lofton, uh, years ago, was speaking at Bob Jones University. You know, standing to Bob Jones. And he was talking about something, and in question and answer, uh, a sweet college girl raised her hand and says, Mr. Lofton, why, why do people just hate us? And he started says, typical John Lofton style, he says, because, my dear, they hate your guts and wish you were dead. That's right. They hate us because of who we are. Plain and simple. 
And uh, Jesus, notice he says here, he who hates me hates my father. So if you don't like Jesus, you don't like the living God. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have both sinned and hated me and my father as well. The world hates Jesus' works, he says. What did Jesus think about Jesus? He's the most loving man the world has ever known or ever will know. So why all the animosity? Just keep in mind who's behind the persecution, Satan. Satan hates God. He hates the Son of God. And anything that Jesus does, Satan will do and use it to instigate rebellion in the minds of those who are his slaves to persecute uh, Christians. Now, Jesus said here in this context, he says, he makes it known, he says, the world uh, hated me without a cause, he says. They had no business in hating me. I came to save men out of their sin and misery. Why should I be hated for that? So he says, they, they hated me without a cause. So he says, if the world hates you, just keep in mind and really, it is helpful to know this. Now, you're going to say, how else am I to take persecution? I'm going to take it personally. Well, yeah, we take it personally because it's centered towards us. But understand this. When they, when they persecute us, just keep this in mind. It's not so much us that they really hate. They hate God. Now, that's helpful to know. It's because I'm a Christian. They hate me so much. Because they're in rebellion against God. Why did Cain kill Abel? What did Abel ever do to Cain to antagonize him? Nothing. Nothing. Turn with me to 1 John 3 and look at verses 11 and 12. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. It was just pure jealousy. Why he killed his brother. Your jealousy. Let's turn to that account in fact. Turn to Genesis 4. But we're going to see it's, it wasn't, it's, it, his, his animosity towards Abel was only because of his attitude towards God. Because we're going to see Cain was very upset with God. Start at verse 1. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. She actually thought, by the way, that Cain was the Messiah. Since God had promised there would be a Messiah, she thought, well, here he is. Uh, no, <laughs> it's not Cain. 
And again she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground, and Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of the flock and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. But you must master it. And Cain told Abel, well, we're told then how Cain rose up. And killed his brother. Now, several things we need to note about this. First of all, what does it say about Cain? He was of who? The evil one. He was a slave, in other words, to the devil. What are we told of uh, Abel? He was a righteous man. In fact, the scripture talks about, uses twice, Jesus refers to Abel as a righteous man. And then we're told in Hebrews how Abel was a righteous man. And here in Genesis 4, you may have wondered at times, uh, was God being picky when he accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's? I mean, is there something bad about being the tiller of the ground so you better not go out and plant gardens anymore? <laughs> is that the issue? No, that's not the issue. Not ultimately. We're told <clears throat> that one of the reasons why, one of the reasons, not the only reason, why God did not accept Cain's offering is because he was able to see Cain's heart. That's why. He knew the attitude by which Cain brought his offering. And it was not pleasing to the Lord. We're told in Proverbs 15.8 that the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. That's what the proverb says. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. We're told in Isaiah 1 uh, how God is upset with Israel over how they were doing uh, the feasts, the ceremonies, how they were praying, how they were uh, conducting worship. Well, who commanded those? Uh, that means God commanded it. But something had gone wrong to the point that God says, I don't want your sacrifices anymore. In fact, I don't want to hear you pray anymore. And, and he goes on to say in Isaiah 1, why, why? Because your deeds were evil. Because you're ruthless. Quit being vicious to one another and learn to do good. In other words, all their religion was was outward ceremony. But they were hated one another. They abused one another. And God says, look, I don't care what your sacrifice is. As Proverbs says, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. You are bad people. 
And don't think that by simply doing, going through the sacrifice, you've won points with me. No, I'm looking at, I'm looking at your heart, and your heart is not right. God was able to see the heart of Cain and knew he did not bring his offering with the right attitude. That was part of it. So God had no respect for Cain, it says. He didn't accept his offering. And notice uh, uh, Genesis 4, 7 says, If you do well, all is good. But if not, sin is crouching at the door uh, to master you. And so the moment that God said, because he knew Cain's heart, when God did not accept the sacrifice, the scripture says Cain became angry. Now, who, who was he angry at? God. He was angry at God. And Abel was happened to be, well, could we say in the wrong place at the wrong time? No, it was going to be, it was going to happen. But Cain will take it out on his righteous brother, his anger against God. His issue ultimately was with God. And so we're told here, as First John, what I read earlier, says that <clears throat> Abel was righteous. Jesus said Abel was righteous. Uh, Psalm 11, verse 7 says, The Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. Now, also, the scripture does bring out in Hebrews 11:4 there is another reason why God didn't accept the offering. And you may have most commonly heard of this one. Abel tended the flocks, okay? And he brought a blood sacrifice as opposed to Cain. And we know that in the scriptures, uh, all the blood sacrifices of the Old Testament pointing to who? To Jesus' blood sacrifice. Without the shedding, as often say in the Lord's Supper, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Um, what we see then is uh, apparently Abel was a penitent sinner. He brings a blood sacrifice. And, and remember, you bring the sacrifice for the purpose of identifying yourself with the sacrifice that you ought to be dying. You ought to be dying. And so there's a penitence there with Abel. He's viewed as a righteous man. But what was Cain? He was a, obviously a very self-confident, a self-righteous person, much like the Pharisees who had problems with Jesus. And Abel, on the other hand, would probably have been, been like the publican who said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. But the scripture says that Cain was enraged, and therefore uh, his heart was in utter rebellion against God, and he took it out on his brother Abel. And so he persecuted. I say that, again, to stress this, is that the world persecutes us, the church, because it first hates God. The issue is with God that they have. And we just are the obvious blunt of their anger towards God. We are the victims of their anger towards God. And that's why they persecute us. Because they identify us 
with God. So the world persecutes us because it hates God, because it hates Jesus. Men and, and why do they do that? Because they are lovers of themselves. That's why. Uh, they don't want to heed anyone who wants to bring conviction of sin in their lives. They resent it. So in one sense, again, the issue is not with us as Christians as it is, again, their problem with God. Now turn to, turn to John 3 and look at verses 18 to 21. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light is come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So why do men not believe in Jesus? Jesus says, they don't believe in me because they love the darkness and because their deeds are evil. That's why they don't come to me. That's why they don't believe me. And they, uh, they are the way they are because it says they hate the light. And what is, what is one of the, uh, the metaphors that Jesus uses about himself? He is what? The light of the world. They hate Jesus. They don't come to the light because they hate the light. They are in rebellion against God. They love themselves. They want it their way at all costs. And therefore, they will have nothing to do with Jesus. And it says they don't come because they don't want their sins exposed. See that? They, they do not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Now, what does light do but shine in the darkness and reveal things? In the dark, you don't know where things are, right? But if you have a flashlight, if this room were dark and I had a flashlight, oh, there's a piano, oh, there's a, a desk, oh, there's a bunch of chairs, Oh, this is that. The light exposes things. It shows us what really is the case. Well, Jesus is the light of the world. And when men love their sins, when they love being in the darkness, and darkness is a, is a metaphor for sin in the scriptures, therefore they don't come because they just want to live the way they want to live. They don't want anybody telling them what to do. And so what we see in that regard then, men are lovers of self. They want things their way. They have an unbridled loss, the Scripture says. Just go through the New Testament and you'll see that the non-Christian is referred to as unbridled lust, uh, the deeds of the flesh. I remember the story of uh, Frank Barker. He was, for many years, the long 
starting founder of the church of Briarwood Presbyterian in Birmingham, Alabama. And when I was at a Christian training program in the early 70s, I went out to church during the summer. I went out to Briarwood. And I remember Frank Barker describing how he became a Christian. Actually, he was a preacher before he got saved. <laughs> that really struck me because I'm a young Christian. I said, you what? You're a preacher you're not saved? And then uh, he said he was in the military, and he kept saying, uh, tying this in with the, the morning uh, Sunday school hour, he kept saying, you know, if it wasn't for my buddies dragging me down, I, I wouldn't get into the kind of trouble that I get in with, the guys in the military. And then it dawned on him one day, he says, I really like doing what they're doing. <laughs> it wasn't them dragging him down. He really liked it, and they tempted him, and he went along with it. But he, the point was here, he, he was in rebellion against God. Finally realized he was in rebellion against God. The light exposes men for what they really are. And you know, the law of God really has that tendency, does it not? To expose us for what we are. That's why... The Bible says in Galatians, the law of God is what? A tutor to lead us to Christ. For what purpose? Because it convicts us of our sins and shows us our need for a Savior. That's one of the purposes of the law of God for the unbeliever, to lead us to Christ. That means when you read the commandments, you say, you know, I am an idolater, but it comes right down to it. I, I, I am rebellious. I don't treat my parents right. I, I, I am a thief. Uh, I, I have these lustful thoughts. Uh, I am an adulterer. And, and it's convicting. And it's designed, the law of God is designed to convict us of sin, to drive us to Jesus who says, look, I'm the remedy for your problem. I can save you out of your sins. I can forgive you. So, the law exposes sin. The light exposes sin. And <clears throat> Jesus' words, when he spoke, he exposed men for what they really were like. He exposed the Pharisees and the scribes as the hypocrites that they were. He said, well, you're just whitewashed tombs." Now, they didn't take that very well. But was it not true? They were self-righteous. But they were wicked men. They were wicked, and Jesus knew it, and he called them out. He exposed their sin. He is the light of the word, the, of the world, and he exposed their sin. And people, sinners, do not like, normally, to have their sin exposed. And usually they will turn on the one who exposes them for their sins. So men love their sin. Oftentimes men don't love to be told they are sinners. Which brings us to something. Why is it very popular today that people are very much attracted to the megachurches, the prosperity gospels? Uh, rarely do they ever talk about sin, and people are flocking to those churches. But the old-time churches, with the preaching about 
sin, conviction of sin. People are not so much interested in going to those kind of churches. If someone says, why would I want to go to church to come out feeling bad? <laughs> feeling bad, and, and, and the assumption is that the preacher has exposed what the Word of God says about some aspect of life and has brought conviction. A lot of people, they don't want to be convicted of their sins, and that's why they're attracted oftentimes to this kind of scenario. As Jesus said in Matthew 5.12, if you're persecuted for my sake, consider yourself blessed because you're in good company. Because they persecuted all the prophets. You realize that? That when, when Jesus <clears throat> was bringing that scathing testimony against the Jews there in Jerusalem, he says, look, you are about to crucify the Son of God. I'm the last of the prophets. I'm the ultimate prophet. And he said, you killed all the prophets between here and the temple, going all, all the way back to Abel. I mean, they were killed. And it says the whole history, I mean, it was, it, was not, it was a dangerous thing to be a prophet of God. Many of them lost their lives. Why? Because they hate God. And they, the last thing they want is some preacher coming along telling them about God and what God thinks about their lifestyle. So they take it out on the prophets. So if we're persecuted, Jesus, Jesus is saying, consider yourself in good company. The prophets were persecuted. Why did John? Why did Herod arrest John the Baptist? Well, now you know we've been preaching through Matthew, and we know John was the uh, the herald. He was the one, uh, the messenger, to lead the way for for Christ. Here's the, the amazing thing in Mark six. It says that Herod liked listening to John the Baptist. Look it up sometime. It says that he liked... Well, let's, let's look at it. Mark 6. Starting at verse 17, it says, For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account, on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing he was a righteous and holy man and kept, kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed. But he used to enjoy listening to him. Herod liked the preaching of John the Baptist until it got kind of personal. But who took the greatest offense? Was it Herod? No, it was his wife Herodias who took the greatest offense because Herod will marry his brother Philip's wife Herodias and said, look, you can't do that. It's against the law of Moses. <coughs> you can't do this, and you're committing incest. So, and, and remember, in the <coughs> death of John the Baptist, 
We're told that Herodias, she didn't have the power as such to, to bring about his death. But in the events when Salome, you know, does her dance <clears throat> before Herod, and Herod is going crazy over this dance, said, I'll just give you anything, anything you want. We're told that Salome went to her mother and says, what should I ask for? <laughs> she goes to the one who has a grudge, the scripture says, and wants to kill John the Baptist. She says, all right. <clears throat> Since the king has said to the public, I'll give you anything, and the king has to keep his word, then ask for the head of John the Baptist. I got him. Herodias says, I got him at last. And so, the coward that he was, Herod capitulates and has John beheaded. The one who used to like to listen to him. The one who was afraid of John. Why? Because he knew John was a godly, holy prophet of the Lord. And so he had a legitimate fear, as he ought to, of the prophet. But he had him killed because of his jealous wife and her hatred for the Baptist. The world hates us. Because the God of this world is behind this world system in rebellion against God. The world hates us because it hates Jesus. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 4 and look at verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing. As though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name let him glorify God. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if... It is with difficulty the righteous is saved. What will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. We learn from this passage that we're not to be surprised at the fiery ordeal. Some biblical uh, scholars believe the fiery ordeal that he's referring to here is the beginning of the Roman persecution under Nero, where Nero used Christians as burning torches in his garden at night. Don't be surprised when it comes. Now, it says here in our test, I mean our text, that God allows it, what? For a test. It's coming upon you for your testing. 
Now, that's helpful to know. So, if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, we're going to talk about the difference between righteousness' sake and another way you can get persecuted. But if you're persecuted for righteousness, then it says God has brought it to test you. What is he testing you? Well, to see, do you really belong to me? Do you really belong to me? Are you willing to die for my sake? Or not? How much are you willing to stand by me and my word, my law? How much do you really care about me? Do you have loyalty to me, or is it can be easily uh, done away with? So God, brethren, will bring a persecution, a persecution to test the church. It says in our sufferings, what are we doing? <clears throat> We are sharing the sufferings of Christ, and therefore we are to rejoice at his coming, his second coming, because we know, as Jesus says, greatly rejoice when you're persecuted. Great is your reward in heaven if you are persecuted for my namesake. So what that means is that our persecution is in the name of Christ, is a sign that God is with us. It it says here, it's a sign that the Spirit of God rests upon us if we're persecuted for His namesake. You know what ought to be a concern to us? Is if we go through this world and nobody ever has a problem with us. That ought to be a concern. Seriously. Because what that means... My lifestyle is not convicting to anybody else, and obviously what I'm saying is not bothering some people. And that ought to be a concern to us, because God says the sign that the Spirit, one of the signs, not the only sign, but one of the signs the Spirit's upon you is that you're persecuted for His sake. You stand out differently. Remember, the world does not like those who are not of it. If the world, if you were of the world, the world would love you. But you're not of the world, Jesus said. That's why I hate you. <clears throat> Don't feel ashamed. Praise God when it happens. God tests the household of faith. In other words, God's going to find out who the compromises are. You never see that? The judgment begins with the household of God. God's going to find out who's willing to make a stand with him or not. And he'll send a persecution to find out who it is. <clears throat> For example, today, today, in modern times, the Lord is judging the visible church. And today, the visible church in sectors are, is crumbling. I'll just give you one example. Under the homosexual agenda, the church the visible church in certain sectors is crumbling. You're now seeing more and more saying, well, we believe it's okay for them to marry. <clears throat> and are you surprised at the animosity that that lifestyle has against us as Christians? Don't be surprised. They hate us. And why do they hate us? Because we have the audacity 
to say the Bible condemns our lifestyle. How dare you condemn us? But the basis for the condemnation is the Word of God. As we read in the passage in Sunday school hour, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, the homosexuals, the effeminate, will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's straightforward. Of course, they will come in and have their own interpretation of that. We're told in our passage here that Christians are suffering according to the will of God. Verse 19, therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to God, to a faithful creator. So here's what your attitude needs to be. If it's for righteousness sake, if you're being persecuted because you're a Christian and your principles and you're standing on the word of God, rejoice. And it says God has brought it for a test to see where you stand. And therefore you're suffering according to the will of God. And he will, he will bless you for it if you stand firm. Turn to uh, 1 Peter 2. There's another aspect. Let's turn over a couple of chapters to 1 Peter 2. Look at verses 19 through 25. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you are healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have been brought and returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Unjust suffering here. Doing what is right and patiently enduring it. Which explains why, if you study church history, you'll see the Christians in Rome, they voluntarily let themselves be eaten by the wild beasts. Uh, you had men, history, uh, willingly go and have themselves burned at the stake, those who hated them. Uh, you have the, the stories of uh, the Covenanters there in Scotland who died by uh, Charles II killed approximately at least 80,000 godly people in Scotland. Why? Because they took on, challenged him as the divine right of kings, uh, because they would not capitulate uh, to the type of worship that he wanted to impose, he wanted to impose upon them. And so I read I tell you some time ago that 16-year-old girl who would not recant, and they uh, put her head in the sand, and, and they watched her die. And they asked her to recant several times, and she wouldn't. And you know what they wanted her to recant of? Just say, just say that Charles is the king and do what he says. If you do that, we'll get you out of the sand. But she wouldn't do it. And she drowned. 
So the idea of Christians being led to the slaughter like sheep being led to the slaughter is based largely on this passage. Jesus, did he utter any threats when he was on the cross? Not one. God forgive them. They don't know what they do. He didn't breathe insults against them. Therefore, we're not. And that's why Christians have patiently accepted the persecution. So, now I've said all along, the premise here is that you suffer and are persecuted for righteousness sake. You know, there are some people who have a type of martyr complex, and they go out of their way to deliberately antagonize people. And so when the persecution happens, they go, persecuted, persecuted, I'm persecuted for righteousness. No, you ask for it. Sometimes if you go out into a crowd, you're going to hell if you do this, and you're shouting from the rooftops to certain people. How do you think that comes across to people out in public? Not very well. Are you, so are you going to be surprised when they uh, persecute you? Or you do something wrong, uh, whatever it is, and per- people uh, persecute you for that. Uh, it, it says, now look. There's nothing glorious in suffering that way. You've got to suffer justly. For my name's sake. Get that. For my name's sake, meaning because you are a Christian, you stand on Christian principles, you're suffering. So when, for example, whoever it is, the homosexual community, convinces the country, which I believe they will, to come against us, we suffer because of it. What did we do? All we did was simply say what the Word of God says. That's all we did. Preach the Word of God. And so what happens here is, again, men hate God. They love the darkness. That's why they don't come. Second Timothy, uh, again, you know, if, we, if it already hasn't convinced you that we will suffer, Second Timothy 3.12 says this. And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It goes with the territory of being Christian. I'll never forget the first time I experienced seeing persecution as a young Christian. I was at a Christian training program, the, uh, the Navigator Parachurch Organization. I was part of in college. We spent the summer in Birmingham, Alabama, and people had to go out and get work for the three months. Uh, we had our brothers, our soul brothers, we used to refer to, our black brothers from Tuskegee Institute. They had a ministry there, and they were there, room with them, and one of them, they got a job at a print company doing, uh, making blueprints for companies. And I forget the, the brother's name. He'd come back, and he was having a hard time because his immediate supervisor was giving him, I mean, lots of trouble. Persecuting him for being a Christian and everything. And uh, he would just tell one horror story after the other. Well, I needed a job. So he said, there's an opening. So I applied, and guess what? I get hired. And now it's not just one, there's two of us. And I got to see what this guy who was a supervisor was doing to him. Well, now he didn't have this guy deal. He had me to deal with and what was funny was this. Uh, before long, another one of us got hired, and now 
it's the three Christians against the one non-Christian there. And then it was four Christians as opposed to the one. And I'll never forget getting on the elevator, and one of the men, uh, the head managers of the whole organization, saw me on the elevator, and he says, let me ask you something. He says, all of you guys that we've hired recently come from this training program. He says, how many of them are you out there? He says, I'd like to hire them all. But I saw for the first time as a Christian in 1971, I must have been a Christian for maybe less than two years. I saw what this brother had to endure, the the verbal abuse that he took. I, I, I heard it personally. It began to change when the guy was outnumbered, but um, nonetheless, I've never forgotten this. You know what uh, our, our, our brothers from Tuskegee Institute used to refer to the uh, unbelievers as, we're out amongst the Philistines. They called them Philistines. I had never forgotten that. The unbelievers are the Philistines. We're doing battle with the Philistines today. He'd come back and say, the Philistines was all over my case today. That cracked me up. <laughs> Paul experienced it in Thessalonica. He went to the synagogue preaching Jesus, and the Jews were jealous, it says. And then how did they turn it on him? They, they knew, they said, well, let's get the civil authorities in on it and say, and this is true, they, uh, let's tell the civil authorities that these Christians, and here's what Acts says, these men who have up, uh, turned the world upside down have come here also preaching there is another king besides Caesar. And that was right. You know why Christians suffered under the Roman Empire for 200 years? Rome was very eclectic. It tolerated virtually every religion. You could be what you wanted in Rome. Here's all they asked you to do. Now, Caesar was this modest guy who simply thought he was divine. And they set up worship centers where you go in and you give token homage to Caesar. And what they were requesting of Christians, look, you can go do what you want, but... You're supposed to go in and give homage to Caesar, because after all, Caesar is God. Now, how do you think Christians dealt with that? I don't think so. Is there another king besides Caesar? Oh, yes. There's only one king, and it's King Jesus. So the Christians refused to bow and give token homage to Caesar. And for that, Rome hated the Christians. And that's why they persecuted them. Because they were not of the world. And you can, uh, so what Rome was saying was you can practice your religion as long as you acknowledge who the ultimate Lord is, and that's Caesar. Go ahead and do whatever you want. Christian, you can stay in your little house of worship. And you can do what you say, and you can hold up your Bible, and you want to do it, but don't you say a word about our lifestyles. 
And so when it comes to uh, the fact of the government doing certain things, then you need to shut up and do what we tell you. God's sending a test to see our, who is who are we going to acknowledge as Lord, Jesus or Caesar? Is it Washington or is it God, which is going to be? And so what they're saying is, how dare you challenge our authority? How dare you, as a Christian, be a what they call a bigot and a, uh, a hate monger against us poor homosexuals? You know that's what they're doing now. They are creating a hate crime speech. It's already happened. I'll mention to you next week, Sunday hour. The Supreme Court of Canada has already ruled on a case from 10 years ago of a guy handing out literature, and in the literature it simply had 1 Corinthians 6-9, some other passage, and the court viewed that as a hate crime. Anything that they would put in print that would challenge their lifestyle directly was considered a hate crime has ordered this guy to pay $7,000 to two homosexual guys and to pay a couple hundred thousand dollars to cover the court case. That's happened in Canada. It's coming to America. It's coming to America. You, uh, <clears throat> so the Lord brings the persecution to see what you're made of. Turn with me as we, we end here. Turn to Daniel chapter 3. There was another modest guy in the Old Testament by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. I'm being facetious. All he did was create a golden image of 60 cubits high, which was 90 feet. 90 feet. Think about that. This image of Nebuchadnezzar was 90 feet tall and about 6 feet wide. And all they said was, let's read it, uh, <clears throat> Daniel 3, starting at verse 3, Then the satraps, the, uh, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. They stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, to you the command is given, O peoples, nations, men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, uh, trigon, the psaltery, bagpipe, all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a fire of blazing fire, a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at the time when all the people heard the sound, the horn, it says they fell down and worshipped them, except three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're told that Nebuchadnezzar was furious. <laughs> he gave them a second chance. He says, look, maybe you didn't understand what I said. Do you not love their response that we see? Because um, in verse 16 through 18, Nebuchadnezzar says, we're, we're going to do it one more time. And they said, look, king, you don't even need to bother. 
with the bagpipes. You don't like him anyway. <laughs> you don't need to bother, because he says, verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, We don't need to give you an answer concerning the matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But, even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, we're not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. So go ahead and kill us. But we're not going to bow to it. So he throws him in the fire in that great story where there's four of them in the fire. Guess who that fourth was? The pre-incarnate appearances, a theophany of the Son of God is what, who that fourth figure in the fiery furnace was. By the way, you know the end of the story. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar is impressed with what happened. Guess who, who God had to humble? Nebuchadnezzar. Do you think it had any bearing when uh, the Lord brought judgment and he crawled around the earth for seven years like a wild animal? Until Nebuchadnezzar says, I've come to understand that there is only one God and it is the God of heaven and earth. And I acknowledge and give glory to this God. Do you think it impressed him when these young men stood and were willing to die for the cause? I think it all came together. So, brother, God tests us through persecution. I, I guess I've got to ask this question. How much of a Christian are you that you stand out to the world so that the world looks at you and says, we don't like you because you're not one of us? Are you that kind of person? Are you that kind of person that you stick out like a sore thumb to the world? And because, and remember, it's not so much you is, is the issue. It's what you stand for. It's who you claim to be in allegiance with, Jesus. And when they persecute us, it's because you narrow-minded Christians, if you would just learn... To get along with everybody else. You know, if Rome had their way, I, I guess on the back of their chariots, they would have had the bumper sticker too said, coexist. <laughs> Seriously. Like I said, you could worship anything you wanted to as long as you gave open homage to Caesar as God. It's when you get pestied. You know what? Today, we're, uh, there's a lot of people in America upset with the present president who they believe wants to take away our rights with reference to guns. I mean, it's riled up a lot of people, hasn't it? And they had the attitude that was popularized in the original Red Dawn movie You can have my gun. Only when you pry it from my dead, cold hand. And it shows a Russian soldier prying it from a cold, dead hand uh, of this guy. Well, what about the assault in the church? I mean, all these gun rights uh, people that, that want to protect their guns, 
I'm all for it. But are you that zealous, too, if they come in and say, look, from here, from time on, every church that says anything against the homosexual community, you will lose your tax-privileged state. I wonder how many are going to cave in. God sends it for a test to see where we really are. So, are you enough of a Christian that you stand out as a sore thumb out into the world? And are you enough of a Christian that you will not compromise the faith and you're willing to die for the faith? Jesus says, if that's you, if, if that's your character that stands out that much, and if you're willing to pay that price, rejoice, for great is your reward in heaven. Let us pray.